Beloved, open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 11 this morning. And we are coming this morning to, you know, almost the end of the quote-unquote doctrinal part of the epistle to the Romans. Like, you know, in a couple of weeks, when we start in Romans chapter 12, it's all application. It's all application of the theology that Paul has been presenting to us in these first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. And so what we're looking at tonight, before we get to the great doxology um, next Sunday, is in reality a, sum, a, sum, a summary, really, a, a, a summation of everything that he has been teaching, yes, in the big picture, but especially since... the beginning of Romans chapter 9. And this text that we're looking at this morning is a little difficult to understand. In fact, I've had a lot of people, more than normal, that have contacted me and said like, man, this doesn't make any sense. It's kind of confusing, right? And it is. It's a little bit of a confusing text. And so we're going to have to be focused this morning and, and attentive this morning and have our minds like engaged this morning. So let us stand together and let's read Romans chapter 11 verses 25 through 32. And then we're going to pray, and then we're going to dig into this text this morning and see what it is that God has for us in His Holy Word. Paul writes, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written, The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Let's pray together. You can be seated. Father, as we... As we approach and engage your word this morning, I pray that we would not take this moment lightly at all. I pray that we would recognize, Father God, what a privilege it is to have your word, to be able to read it in our own language, to have the opportunity to hear it preached. Father, to be instructed by your Spirit in eternal truth. I pray that we'd recognize the gravity of what it is that we do, Lord God, when we, when we come to your word like this. When the preacher stands to preach and your people sit to receive and Lord God, that we would see that this time of being in your word is a vital consequence. And that what we're dealing with are not helpful hints for a happy life, 
but the very words of eternal life. The word that shapes and forms everything that is. So I'm praying, Lord God, that as we engage your word this morning, that, Father, you would be in our midst, and you would exalt yourself, and you would exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. And, Father God, you would empower the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our presence. Father, that you would arrest every single heart. That, Father, as we go, as we examine these words, as we examine, Father, the, the, the application that springs forth from them, that all pride and all arrogance, all human self-satisfaction would be brought utterly low. That, God, we would be filled with an amazement and an awe at your character and your wonder, at the incredible mercy that you have shown to us. I pray, God, that we, that, that we would be made nothing of and that you'd be made much of. I pray, Father, for the people that are in this room today, and Father, that are either in rebellion against you, those that belong to you who are straining against your lordship, or those who are here that do not know you at all, perhaps are religious only. And I am praying, Father, that you would, by your grace and through the preaching of your holy word, that, Father, you would break hardened hearts and make them hearts of flesh, that you would give eyes to see the depth of depravity and sin that separates from you, and that you would give a heart to believe in all that Christ has done and all that he is, and that you'd save people. Father, save and sanctify people today, I pray. Give me grace. Please, Lord, fill me with your spirit so that I can preach these words faithfully and accurately and clearly and understandably and so that, God, I I might be able to apply these words with effect to the hearts of the people in this room. I know that my words can't do that. Lord, it's got to be, my words must be empowered by your Spirit, so I'm praying that you will do that. And God, give them hearts to hear. Make us all to be humble as we feast upon this good gift of yours, your holy word. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, again, beloved, this text isn't an easy one to understand, right? When you're reading it, as you're reading it, you know, the, the terms that Paul uses and the, and the way that he uses them can sometimes be confusing, right? I mean, who's he talking about when he's talking about Israel? Who's he talking about when he's talking about the theys? What about the alls? Who is everybody in this text, right? How are we supposed to understand this? Well, I want to remind you of something, that the key to understanding a text, you know, when you're reading through an epistle, when you're reading through, you know, one of the books that has been written in the Word of God, the way that you understand text is by remembering the context in which you find that text, right? 
And so the way that we understand this text this morning is that, you know, we need to remember everything that Paul has been teaching us, in particularly since Romans chapter 9, okay? We need to keep this text in the context of, of the doctrinal truth in which Paul has been instructing us, right? Well, what's he been talking to us about? Well, you remember he's been talking to us about some essential things. He's been talking to us, for instance, about the sovereign freedom of God in salvation, right? That God has sovereign freedom to, to, to save the sinners whom he chooses to save and to leave others in their sin, right? It's his divine prerogative. We have to remember the, the doctrine of election, like we talked about. We need to remember human responsibility and the fact that everyone is accountable before God for their moral choices, right? we got to remember that. All human beings have made themselves fit for destruction, and if any are saved, it is only and entirely of God's mercy, right? We need to be reminded that, as you know, Paul taught us, that not all Israel is true spiritual Israel, right? Not all of the nation of Israel, not all of the physical descendants of Abraham are actually the spiritual descendants of Abraham, right? There is a remnant chosen by grace within that greater Israel. We need to be reminded that nobody can be saved by their own hand or by their own works or by their own religiosity, no matter how fervent they may be, but only through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ and faith in the Jesus Christ of the gospels, right? We need to be reminded that salvation is received by believing in Christ, by confessing in Him, confessing Him as Lord, by calling upon His name, right? That the nation of Israel as a whole has rejected the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Messiah and the righteousness that comes through faith in Him alone. And instead, they have sought to establish their own righteousness before God through a self-styled and apostate religion that they've designed. We need to remember that because Israel rejected Christ, the gospel now has gone out to the Gentiles. And, and, and God has been found by those who were not seeking Him, right? That God's using the salvation of those elect Gentiles in order to make jealous the elect Jews that are in Israel and scattered among the nations in order to do what? Well, to drive them to return to the Lord and receive Christ as Savior and Messiah. So the gospel went first to the Jews. They rejected it. Now it goes to the Gentiles. The Gentiles receive it. Then it boomerangs back around to the Jews. God's got a divine plan. Maybe not one you would have chosen, but he's got a divine plan. He's got a divine strategy for the salvation of his elect, right? And knowing and remembering all those things are essential then to understanding this text. And again, because this text is a little more difficult than normal, I'm going to do something a little differently this morning from what I normally do. Rather than giving you guys an outline, you know, like four or five points like we usually do every Sunday, instead of doing that, I'm just going to walk through this, ver this text verse by verse. I want us to just walk through this text verse by verse, exposit each verse as we go so that we stay in the flow 
of what Paul is saying so that we don't have any, any unnecessary disruptions, okay? So that we can just understand and trace through what it is that Paul is saying. And then, after we do that, we'll make some contemporary application to us, okay? So that's what we're going to do this morning. I think it's the best way for us to really understand this passage, to get what it is that Paul is saying to us. So look how he begins in verse 25, right? Paul begins by saying these words. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, it's important that we understand, first of all, what a mystery is. A mystery, beloved, in Scripture is not a puzzle that you decode by your own human wisdom. You don't sit down and, and put some thinking to it and scratch out some stuff and figure it out, okay? Neither is it, and, and I've heard this before, it's not some secret knowledge that is revealed only to a select handful. And if you're in the know, you know, you get to, you get to comprehend the mystery. But if you're not in the know, well, tough luck for you. That's not what a mystery is. In Scripture, a mystery is simply this. It is it's something that is unknowable by human reason. Re- reason. It's something that's unknowable by human wisdom. It's something that you and I cannot even begin to fathom or come up with. But it is something then that has been revealed by God to His people for the good of His people. You wouldn't have come up with it on your own, but God chooses to reveal it to you. He chooses to reveal it to His people for their good. So here's what Paul is saying. Paul's saying in essence here, he's saying, look, it's important for you to understand this mystery. I want to make sure you guys understand this mystery, just how it is that God is going about saving his elect. I don't want you to be wise in your own sight. I don't want you to think that, that you... You know have, that you have the wisdom and the insight to comprehend what God is doing. I don't want you to think that that you can possibly understand His purpose and His plans. I don't want this to lead you to pride and arrogance, as if God has rejected all the Jews forever in your favor because you Gentiles are so awesome. I want you to understand what's going on. So I want to explain to you how it is that God is bringing about. The salvation of his elect, both from the Jews and the Gentiles. And then he goes on to say, look, here's what you really need to know. You need to understand this. Right now, there is a partial hardening in Israel. A partial hardening of the Jewish people. Though many in Israel have been judicially hardened in their unbelief and in their rejection of Christ, And as a result of being judicially hardened by God in their own unbelief, they're going to face judgment for their sin. Still, there are some in Israel who are the elect of God and who are going to be saved. Through Israel's national rejection of Christ, not every Jew, but most of them, the gospel has now gone out to all the nations of the world. It's gone out to Gentiles of every tribe and nation and tongue. And they are coming into the kingdom through the preaching of the gospel. And they are daily being added to the church. The fullness of the Gentiles is coming in. Because God is at work saving his elect among the nations. 
Now, I want you to understand something. We need to comprehend this, that the fullness of the Gentiles, that, the, that, that, that statement, that, that phrase that Paul uses here is, is a figure of speech, okay, that describes how the gospel is going out into the world, how it's reaching and filling up the nations. That's the idea. So that a vast number of Gentiles have come to faith in Christ such that they are surpassing the number of the Jewish converts. And that it is through, then, this mass Gentile conversion that God will actually bring about the salvation of His elect Jews from among all the nations. Let me show you. Paul says, verses 26 and 27, and in this way, Israel will be saved. Well, in what way? In the bringing in of the fullness of the Gentiles. In this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sin. So what's Paul saying here? He's saying, and I want to make sure we get this right. Because some people, when they read this text, they read it incorrectly. They read it, they read this text as saying, and then all Israel will be saved. They put a time stamp on it. And then all Israel will be saved. And then from that, they take Paul to be saying that at the end of the age, here's what's going to happen. It's at the end of the age, there's going to be this huge conversion of the Jewish people such that we might say the entire nation will be saved. Now maybe there will be. Perhaps there will be this massive conversion in the future of elect Jews. Okay? God will do as He deems best. But that is not what this text is saying. These words are not pointing to a certain time frame. Rather, to the manner in which the elect Jews will be saved. saved. Look at it. He says, in this way, in this way, all Israel will be saved. Or by this method, all Israel will be saved. Well, who's Israel here? Is it every last Israelite, every single physical Jew? We know that can't be true, right? Because we already know that not all Israel is of Israel, right? We know that not every last Jew is going to be saved, right? So what's he talking about? Well, he's got to be talking about all of the elect Jews in the nation of Israel, amongst the nation of Israel. As we've already seen last week, here's how it's going to happen. Through the redemption and blessing of many Gentiles throughout the nations of the world, the Jews are going to be stirred up to jealousy and longing in their hearts such that, you know, those elect Jews. Now listen to me. Those that are in Israel, but also those that are scattered throughout the world. That's the point here. Not every Jew lives in Israel, right? They're scattered throughout the nations. It was true in Paul's day. So that it's through the gospel going out to all of the Gentile nations and the fullness of the Gentiles coming in that those in Israel and those scattered among the Gentile nations throughout the world, they're going to be drawn to Christ and they're going to be saved. They're going to be stirred up to jealousy and they're going to be drawn to Christ and they're going to be saved because they see the Gentiles being brought into a kingdom that it seemed as if they had no right to belong. 
right? That's the idea. In fact, really, in effect, the elect Jews are being evangelized by the Gentiles with the gospel of the Jewish Messiah. How's that for irony? Moved with a holy jealousy. They're now hearing with open ears the gospel they once rejected. They're seeing with opened eyes the glory of Christ whom they once despised and by means of the spread of the gospel to all the nations, the elect Jews now are being saved and will continue to be saved until all of them are brought into the fold of the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And in God's divine plan, the way He's going to bring them to holy jealousy is by saving Gentiles and making them jealous, making them to desire salvation, desire the blessings that were promised to Abraham, and causing them to repent and believe in Christ. Then Paul quotes from Isaiah 59, 20, and loosely from Jeremiah 31 and 33, when he says, The deliverer will come from Zion, and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. I want you to see this with me, because this is important, okay? Both these texts have as their primary focus, if you look at them contextually, both of them have as their primary focus the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ in His incarnation. The saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ when the Word took on flesh and dwelt among men, okay? And here's why that's important. Some people teach that the elect Jews will be saved in some other way than by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They'll say, well, you know, Jews, because they're Jews and not Gentiles, they're going to be saved by some mixture of faith and works, okay? Or by the resurgence and, resurgence and adherence to the law, that they're going to be saved by real, rebuilding the temple and offering the sacrifices and all that stuff. Or they'll say, Elect Jews are actually going to be saved instantaneously at Christ's second coming. Although they are a little fuzzy on how exactly that happens. Beloved, all of those other methods of the elect Jews being saved is malarkey. Okay? It's foolishness. There's only one way of salvation. Paul has been teaching that to us all along, hasn't he? Right? It's not like when he wrote the epistle to the Romans, he said, hey, here's the epistle to the Greek Romans, the Gentile Romans. Here's the epistle to the Jewish Romans, because the Gospels aren't quite the same. Is that what he did? No. There's not one way for the Gentile to be saved and then another way for the Jew to be saved. Just like there's not one way for the rich and another for the poor, or one for the powerful and another for the weak, or one for the educated and one for the illiterate, or one for the great or one, and, and one for the small, or one for the religious and another for the irreligious. There's only one way of salvation for sinners, right? In other words, here's what Paul is saying. He's saying the elect Jews are going to be saved in the exact same way as the Gentiles. It's going to be through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's going to be by exclusive trust. 
It's the same way that you and I are saved. By exclusive trust in his life of perfect obedience to the law of God, lived on behalf of his people in order to provide for them a righteousness, the only righteousness, by which they can be received and stand before the holy God, right? It's it's a salvation that comes only by exclusive, exclusive trust in his sacrificial and atoning death in which all the sins of his people were placed upon Christ and counted as his own and for which he, the Lord Jesus, endured the full penalty of God's wrath, the very essence of hell, and paid the debt that those sins required. And it's by exclusive trust in his glorious resurrection on the, uh, on the third day by which he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans 1.4, right? There's not a different way for the elect Jews to be saved. They must be saved through faith in Christ just like everybody else, Okay? And then he says, look, as it regards the gospel, verse 28, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. So what's Paul saying? He's saying, well, look, there's two perspectives by which you've got to look at the Jews. Like when you consider the Jewish nation, here's how you need to look at them. On one hand, yes, they are, in fact, the enemies of the gospel. Just like all of us once were, right? They're enemies of the gospel. And that has turned out for your spiritual good. Because, because, because they have rejected the gospel, you've heard and received the gospel, and you've been saved. Praise God for that, right? But that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean, that God has rejected everyone in the nation of Israel. Because as it regards election, as it regards God's sovereign choice in salvation, the elect in Israel are beloved of God. They're deeply loved. They are objects of His saving grace and His covenant love because of those promises that God gave to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob of having spiritual offspring. The elect Jews, yes, they seem to be recalcitrant enemies right now of the gospel. But God is turning their hearts. And He will continue to turn their hearts of the elect to Christ. Because they're the elect of God, they've got to be saved. They must be saved. And here's why that is so. He says in verse 29, Here's why. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Okay? Now, let me just tell you this. I have heard this verse taken out of context so many times, I can't even remember. And it's usually taken out of context and applied to guys that are preachers that have made themselves disqualified from the office. And then people will come alongside of them and say, oh, now, now. The gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. We know that you have made yourself disqualified, but God doesn't see you as disqualified because those gifts and those callings are irrevocable. 
This has absolutely nothing to do with a preacher. Zero. This has, that is not a verse that you can pluck and pick and apply to defend doing something that has made a preacher disqualified. has nothing to do with that at all. It has to do with the elect in Israel. It has to do with the elect Jews. And here's what Paul is saying. The gifts that God gave to national Israel, and we read about them back in Romans chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. Look, look back there real quick. The adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen, right? He's saying, those gifts, they have not been and they cannot be rescinded. And they will yet be of great benefit. They will yet be of great effect for the salvation of the elect in Israel. Those gifts aren't wasted. And God doesn't take them back. And moreover, that calling, God's calling. He's talking here about God's effectual calling of His chosen people. He's talking about that special, particular, personal, life-giving, life-producing call that God promises to His elect that apprehends and arrests the one that's called and draws him, even compels him to come to Christ by changing his heart and changing his heart and changing his desires in such a way that he or she willingly believes in Christ, that effectual calling cannot be revoked. God must, must, he must extend his effectual call to his elect because he promised that he would. He promised that he would. And God's not a man that he should lie. He will call and save every soul upon whom he has placed his eternal, steadfast, and unchanging, redemptive love. Like Paul already told us. Romans chapter 11, verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, right? He will have all those whom he chose before the foundation of the world, right? Well, now what's going through the Gentiles' mind is that, well, these Jews have been so disobedient. They've been so resistant. Whether they're elect or not, they've been awfully resistant and disobedient to God, right? God's going to overlook that? He's going to forgive that? And Paul continues by saying this. Yeah, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. Wait, what? Okay, here's what it is. In essence, Paul is saying to the Gentile Christians in Rome, okay guys, think about this. Think about this clearly. Think about this correctly. Think about this without bias. Examine yourself honestly, okay? He said, I want you to think about this. You were once disobedient to God, just like the Jews, weren't you? 
weren't you? And you had no desire for God. In your ungodliness and unrighteousness, you actually suppressed the truth about God, and you were under His just wrath as a result, right? And it wasn't because of a lack of knowledge. It's because, well, I just didn't know. Yeah, you did know, actually, because the creation testified to God and points to His power and His divine nature. You knew that there was a real and a true God, the Creator of all things, a God with infinite power and wisdom. The facts were right there before you. But you didn't honor Him. You didn't give thanks to Him. Rather, in your sinful and your futile thinking, your hearts were darkened. You trusted in your own wisdom. And you became fools. And you rejected the testimony of God's glory. And you created and worshipped idols. And you descended into the very wretchedness and wickedness of sin to dishonorable passions and sexual immorality and perversion and pervasive sin of every kind. And you remember the list that that Paul gave us back in Romans 1, right? Evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, gossip, slander, insolence, arrogance, boasting, disobedience to parents. You were foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. You were haters of God. You were without excuse. How many of you can find yourself in there? Heck yeah. That's what you were. Apart from God's mercy. God didn't just leave you there in your just condemnation. Though he would have had every right to. No, through the disobedience of Israel, you've heard the gospel. You elect Gentiles, you become the recipients of mercy, rich and free. God's been compassionate to you. He's shown you mercy. He hasn't left you in the, in the pit of degradation you dug for yourself. He effectually has called you out of disobedience and into Christ. Did you deserve it? No. But what has God said? I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Not one among you was deserving of the mercy of God because nobody deserves mercy. To speak of deserving mercy is a contradiction in terms. Now listen. If you were like that, disobedient to the general revelation of God, such that you created idols for yourself and you got consumed with your sin... And you rejected the God who is, right? Listen, if God is merciful, can be merciful to you likewise, the nation of Israel as a whole, though it is disobedient and hard-hearted and unbelieving, though they have rejected their own Messiah, just like you rejected the clear evidence of God, like you, they've been disobedient, and they've rejected the glorious truth of Christ, And they've gone about trying to establish their own righteousness by means of their traditions. And like you, it wasn't because of a lack of knowledge, but rather because they loved their sin. And they have closed themselves up and locked themselves up under just condemnation. Although that is true. Although that is true. God delights to show them mercy just like He did you. 
just like he did you. He delights to show them mercy. By the mercy that has been shown to you in the gospel, God is showering mercy upon the elect in Israel now and in the future. They are being shown mercy. God's pursuing and saving and forgiving mercy until every single one of the elect are saved. They're disobedient. Yes, just like you were. And they shall receive mercy just as you have. And by your redemption and by your evangelism and by your enjoyment of the blessings of salvation, you're going to be the very instrument through which God does it. That's how it works. That is the divine mystery of God's plan to redeem His people. I don't want you to be ignorant of it. This is what God's doing. He's saving you all. And it's stirring up, you know, jealousy within the Israelites. And so the elect Jews among the Israelites, they're being stirred up to jealousy and they see the wonders that you've received. And now they're hearing the gospel and their eyes are being opened and God is saving them. And you're not being saved because you're better than them. You're not being saved because you're superior to them. Or because God is so sick of the Jews, He had to get rid of them and start over with somebody else. It's not it. Look, you never would have come up with this plan. Nobody ever come, would have come up with a gospel. The gospel of salvation. The gospel of the Jewish Messiah that comes first to the Jews. Many of them get saved on Pentecost. And then, as a whole, they reject it. Then it goes to the Gentiles. And they get saved. And oh, by the way, now it boomerangs back through the evangelism of the Gentiles to these Jews. And they hear the, the declaration of the gospel of the Jewish Messiah from the mouth of Gentiles and they are saved. Nobody would come up with that. You could have a thousand tries. You'd never come close. None of us, a million tries. You, nobody would ever come close. He's saying that's the mystery. That's how God's at work. That's what's going on here. So stay in your lane, Gentiles, and get a clue. And be grateful for the mercy that you received. And then he sums it all up. Look in verse 32 by saying this. He said, God, God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Again, this is another one of those verses that people will rip out of context and make it to say what it doesn't say. Okay? What is Paul saying here? He's saying, look, God has consigned all people everywhere, without exception, write that down, without exception to disobedience. God has consigned all people everywhere without exception to disobedience. In other words, every human being is condemned by our failure to honor Him as God and by our failure to obey the law. All of us, whether it is the law of God that is written on the consciences of men, as in the case of the Gentiles, or it is the law of God as codified by Moses. But all of us, every single human being that has ever drawn breath, that has been born of man and woman, I put that in there because I, I don't want to include Jesus in this, obviously, that has been born of man and woman, every single one of us 
stands condemned before God because of our own personal sin. Our problem is not our genetics. It's not your DNA. It's not, you know, I was, a born, I was born this way. It's not, you know, bad breaks in your life. It's not because of a troubled childhood. Our problem is not our social oppression or our victimism. Our problem is sin. Our personal sin. Adam's sin that made us sinners and our sin that confirms that we're sinners. We're all worthy of destruction and to suffer divine wrath in hell because of our personal disobedience, right? We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Nobody's standing is any better than anybody else's apart from Christ. Nobody's. Despite whatever distinctions we may make among people. We're all deserving of hell. And God has consigned us all to a state of disobedience. Shut up under the law. So that he may have mercy on all. Without distinction. Write that down. So that he might have mercy on us all without, without distinction. Not everyone without exception. Not everybody receives God's mercy, right? God leaves some in their willful disobedience and sin, correct? So it's not everyone without exception that receives God's mercy, but it is everyone, His elect, mercy on all of His elect without distinction. That is mercy on all kinds of men and women, both Jews and Gentiles, mercy on all kinds of sinners, mercy on all kinds of rebels, mercy on all classes of people. What makes the difference? Like underline, bold, star, whatever it is you do in your Bible. What makes all the difference is God's mercy and God's mercy alone. And that he pours out his mercy upon his elect. And that's why any of us is saved. That's what Paul's been telling us all along. That's the whole point. It's not about you. It's all because of God's mercy. So what do we take away from this text? Some of y'all are looking at your watches, you're like, man, we're going to get up early today. No, you're not. No, you're not. But, you know, the application is longer than the exposition. What do we make of this? Don't worry, you're having, lunch. you're having lunch after this. You can hold on for a few, right? How do we apply this text? I think there are, there are really, what, how many do I have here? There are six ways. Six ways that we need to apply this text. Number one is this. All of us who are saved, we need to confess with our whole heart and believe in our whole soul that our salvation is all of God's mercy and nothing of ourselves. Now, we will say that, but man, we got to believe that. We got to believe it. Let me ask you a question. Why did you find favor with God? Why did you find favor with God? 
Why are you saved, Christian, and not somebody else? What do you say to that? I'll tell you what it's not. It's not anything in you. It's not because you're wiser or more noble than another. It's not because you sought for God. Oh, yes, I did. From the time I was a little kid, I sought after God. Liar. As it's written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. It's not because you are intrinsically better than anybody else. You aren't, and I'm not either. In fact, there's no earthly reason why any of us is saved. We are all of us, all of us, people of great sin, are we not? Like, if we're honest, you can't even count up the sum of your sins before the three times holy God. Not just in your lifetime since you got up this morning. You can't count them. We're saved entirely because God chose to show mercy to a sinful wretch. Through the mercy of God, we're justified, we're washed clean, we're forgiven, we're redeemed, we're adopted, we're being sanctified, and praise God, we will be glorified. It's only against the backdrop of our sin, our fallen state, and the fact that we don't deserve anything good from God. That the mercy of God shines like the great and the glorious gift that it is. Amen. You know, we were talking about this in men's Bible study on Friday. We were talking about, you know, just the mercy of God to save sinners. I, I mean, I was thinking about, I was talking to you, how in the world, I mean, I think about it like, how in the world did I ever come to be saved? How did that ever happen? I grew up in an unbelieving home. I grew up in a town in which, you know, it, which is littered with unbiblical, unfaithful churches that are based more in Christian superstition than they are in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I didn't want anything to do with God. I thought Christians were idiots. How in the world did I ever hear the gospel? How did I ever believe the gospel? How did I ever come to faith in Christ? Listen, there's no explanation except the mercy of God. Maybe you are different. Maybe you grew up in a faithful, gospel-preaching church. Let me ask you a question. How'd you come to be there? How was it that you came to sit under faithful preaching and have your heart opened to the truth of the gospel? What part did you play in that? Maybe you were born to faithful Christian parents who taught you of Christ. Let me ask you a question. What input did you have in that providence of God? It's not like you're sitting up in heaven, pre-born, flipping through, you know, Christian directory on the earth, picking out your parents. Maybe somebody invited you to a faithful gospel preaching church and you came and you heard the word of God and you came to faith in Christ. Do you just think that was happenstance? Perhaps you came to Christ, to, to Christ by, uh, by reading the Bible. Well, well how did that Bible come to be in your hands? Perhaps you're saved through the faithful evangelism of a Christian who told you about Christ. Well, how did you happen to hear that person? 
And why is it that you believed what he said about Christ when everybody else rejected his or her testimony? Listen, it is all, and it is only because God chose to have mercy on you, because God chose to be compassionate to you, because God loved you with an everlasting, saving love before the foundation of the world. That's why. Man, God is not some mechanical, stoical sovereign playing divine chess with human beings as pawns. That is not what it is. He is a God of infinite love, a God of tender mercy, a God of great compassion towards those whom He has chosen to save out of a multitude of sinners who have made themselves, all of them, fit for destruction. People get upset with the sovereignty of God. Without the sovereignty of God, you are hopelessly lost forever. So choose. You want to be sovereign or should God be? Because if you're sovereign... We already know what you chose. Already know what I chose. I made myself fit for destruction. That's how great of a sovereign I am. What do any of us have have, that we didn't receive from God? Really, what does anybody have that's good that you didn't receive from God? God being rich in His mercy, Ephesians says. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Listen to that again. God, don't just, you know, brush over it. Like, oh, we've heard that a million times. Really? Hear it again. God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Well, what do you have to say to that? Ho-hum? For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's what? It is the gift of God. Not a result of works that no one may boast. What do you have that you haven't been given by God? When we consider God's mercy to us, when we consider it personally... Beloved, we ought to be overwhelmed with gratitude. We ought to be. You know, listen, here's the truth. When Paul writes, you know, to the Corinthians, we always look at the Corinthian church. We kind of look at, you know what we do with the Corinthian church? We do the same thing with them that we do with the Pharisees. We put the black hat on them immediately. As soon as you mention the Corinthian church, everybody's like, oh, yeah, the Corinthians. Those guys are such idiots, right? We do that with the, we do that with the Pharisees, too, right? But we do it with the, we do it with the Corinthian church. And so we ignore some of the things that Paul says directly to the Corinthian church that (gasps) applies to us. For instance, when he says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. There isn't anybody in this room that's not somewhere in that description. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You couldn't do anything to earn heaven. I couldn't either. And that God in His mercy would, would redeem sinners like us ought to fill us with overwhelming gratitude. In fact, John MacArthur rightly observes, he says, this should fill us he said that he said the most compelling 
motivation for faithful, obedient living should not be the threat of discipline or loss of reward, but rather overflowing and unceasing gratitude for the marvelous mercies of God. Amen. Amen. Second thing is this. As we consider the truth of this text, beloved, we ought to grow in humility, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we? We ought to grow in humility. And then humility ought to fuel our worship as we meditate on God's sovereignty and salvation and the mercy that He has shown to us. In other words, here's what I'm getting at. Here's what I'm getting at. This truth is not just theology for your brain. Say it again. This truth is not just theology for your brain. It is not as Dr. Mark so famously calls it sometimes, brain candy. Right? That's not what this is. These truths are, just, are not merely to puff up your knowledge. Therefore, inflaming your heart with love and worship to God. Are you with me? I've said this before. I'll say it again. You'll probably hear this multiple times. As long as I live. Doctrine has to lead. It must lead to doxology. Doctrine must lead to doxology. If it doesn't, you know what it is? It is just dead learning. Doctrine must lead to doxology. The fuel of worship is biblical truth. It was for Paul. Right? That's why, that's why he ends this, this chapter in the way that he does. Well, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift that he might be repaid? From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Right? Paul doesn't get done with this and go, oh, that was most interesting. It leads him to worship. Right? Third, this text ought to transform the way that we think about the church. Hmm. What do I mean by that? Here's what I mean by that. The church, beloved, the church is the, it is the, the glorious evidence, the wondrous evidence of the glory of God's mercy to sinners, isn't it? That we exist, that the church exists, is the wondrous evidence of the glory of God's mercy to sinners, isn't it? I mean, out of God's unrelenting love, the riches of His mercy, He saved of Christ for the joy of upholding the worth of God's glory, for the joy of fully displaying His glorious Savior, for the joy of bringing many sons to glory, for the joy of freeing sinners trapped by the slavery of sin, and for the joy of saving a people from the wrath of God, redeeming and transforming rebels into devoted worshipers of the living God. He saved His people, His church, us. God's glory is revealed in us and it's revealed through us as we make much of the mercy that we've been shown. As we believe and keep on believing with all of our souls in Christ alone as, as, and as God has put Him forth in His Word for salvation. He's glorified as we join together as the great recipients of mercy to offer to Him spiritual sacrifices, to worship Him, to serve Him by serving His people. By witnessing to Him and declaring His mercy to the nations. God's glory is displayed when people from all walks of life and all manner of backgrounds are brought together around the Lord Jesus Christ 
by the mercy of God and they love one another because they love the gospel and they love Jesus. God's mercy, beloved, ought to bring forth a mercy-declaring, mercy-practicing, mercy-exalting people. Right? It'll absolutely change the way we look at the church. Fourth, this text ought to cause us to just sit back, you know, and say, man, God is God and I am not. You know, it ought to make us just marvel at the perfection of God's redemptive plan because it is, it is remarkable, perfection, it is perfect. The mystery of his mercy to sinners. It's, it's remarkable. John Gerstner says it best. He says it like this. He says, only the Christian gospel presents a way in which justice and mercy kiss each other. First, Christianity condemns the fact that justice must be satisfied. Confirms the fact, I'm sorry, confirms the fact that justice must be satisfied. Sin must be condemned according to its demerit. That means eternal doom. The sinner must be damned because God must be inexorably holy and just. His all-powerful being must vindicate His all-holy being. Christianity never compromises the ever-blessed purity and excellency of the divine nature. Never. But second, Christianity alone finds a way to satisfy infinite justice and provide infinite mercy at the same time. What no other religion has dreamed of, Jesus Christ has accomplished. He underwent the infinite wrath of God against sin and lived to bestow His mercy on the damned sinners for whom He died. The infinite Son of God took upon Himself a human nature in which He underwent the full fury of the divine wrath. The omnipotent God satisfied His violated holiness by punishing sin completely in His beloved Son who became sin for His people. The justice of God was vindicated in full in the substitute, His own Son, our Savior dear. He survived that awful vengeance and rose victor over the grave by the power of His own divinity. And now He offers to every sin-sick and pleasure-burdened soul an everlasting mercy. Perfect mercy and perfect justice in the gospel of the crucified. Beloved, who could ever conceive and accomplish such a perfect plan? Only the Holy God. And He deserves all praise as the author and the architect of our glorious salvation. Praise God that He's full of mercy to save and that He proved it by sending His Son to this world to save sinners. Fifth, beloved, this text ought to mold and shape the way that we see and perceive the lost among us and the power of God to save. Look, unbelievers come in all shapes and sizes, don't they? Don't they? I mean, there's not one size fits all sinner out there, right? Unbelievers come in a variety of different, you know, shapes and sizes. You've got the moral sinners and the profligate sinners and the obnoxiously and insufferably self-righteous sinners. 
Usually you find them in church. You got the passively indifferent sinners, the openly antagonistic, the religious and the irreligious, atheists, the deceived and the self-deluded, and the spiritualists. I'm spiritual, I'm just not religious. And the cult members. But no matter what shape or what size or what ideology, here's the truth. They all have one thing in common, that they've consigned to a state of disobedience, right? They're lost and without God. They're enemies of the gospel. They're guilty before Him. They're in desperate need of God's mercy. And praise God, He loves to give mercy to the guilty. None of us has a right to say, not one of us. We all have our favorite whipping boy. Not just Hitler. I'm saying like now. We all have our favorite whipping boy now, right? You know, the, the, the big one now is Sam Smith. You know, that, I'll just leave it at that, Sam Smith, because whatever I say probably wouldn't be kind, right? He's the favorite whipping boy now. None of us has a right to say that that person, whoever it is, is too far gone or that they're beyond the reach of God. You know why? Because we would have said that about Paul. Wouldn't we? We would have said that about... If we'd have been an early Christian, we would have been like, dude, that Paul guy, there's no way God can save that guy. Until he happens to be on a road to Damascus. And as he's falling off a horse, before he hits the ground, he recognizes Christ as Lord. We can't look at somebody and say, man, that person's too far gone. In fact, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it's written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Listen, I'm going to tell you something. Here's the truth. You might be sitting here and thinking to yourself, well, I was an easier nut to crack than Paul was. No, you weren't. In fact, it's that very pride that makes you think that you were an easier nut to crack that proves that you weren't. But I want you to know this. God's, and and we can testify this, God's mercy is immeasurably more powerful than anyone's sin. Isn't that true? God's mercy is immeasurably more powerful than anyone's sin. And praise God that that's so. No one can resist the mighty mercy of God when God powerfully calls that person to himself. Nobody. So keep preaching the gospel. And keep laying the glory of Christ before everybody that you know. And pray for God to change hearts and to draw sinners to himself. Have faith in him. God knows his elect. And he will save them by his appointed means because his purpose to do so is irrevocable. It hasn't changed. It's in the very heart of God, very nature of God to save. He's a saving God. Yeah, you look around and you say, well, that person's disobedient. That person's disobedient. That person's disobedient. 
Yeah, and so are you. So are you. And by His mercy, God saved you. What He did for you, He can do for another. He delights. He delights, God does, in bestowing His riches on all who call upon Him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10, verses 12 and 13. And then here's the last thing. For those of us who are here in this room this morning, you're not in Christ. And you've heard the gospel. But you refuse to repent of your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You refuse to confess that all of your righteousness is really filthy rags. And you refuse to call upon Him to save you and forgive you of your many trespasses. To trust in His righteous life and atoning death to pay the penalty of your sins and to give you the righteousness that you need to stand before the living God. Let me ask you this. Let me just ask you this. Why will you choose eternal death? Why? What is so compelling to you about eternal death? Why will you refuse the gracious offer of life from God? What are you trying to prove? What excuse are you going to have on the day of judgment? Well, I, I thought I had a better way, God. I thought I could really please you. Or I didn't think you were real. Or it never struck me as being that important. Listen to me, refusing to believe the gospel, refusing to repent of your sins and trust in Christ. Listen to me, that's not a neutral position. It's not like there's Christians over here and unbelievers over here, but I just haven't responded yet and I'm a class unto myself. No, no you're not. To refuse to believe the gospel, listen to me, it's not a neutral position. It makes you an enemy of the gospel. It makes you an enemy of God. It makes you under His wrath and His condemnation for eternity. Why will you stay there? What is so compelling about hell and death? The Lord speaks to you with gracious words. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. The unrighteous man, his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. What, what is it? What is it? Why won't you? Why do you refuse to believe? Is it your pride? You've got to preserve you're standing? Is that what it is? Is it your, is your unwillingness to, to admit your need? Is it shame because you're already so far down the path, you might as well just keep going, see it to its end, because I'm not a hypocrite. If you think turning from sin and turning to Christ is hypocrisy, be a hypocrite today. 
What is it? Is it your self-love? Is it your love of this world and everything that it falsely offers as life? I want you to hear the words of Jesus. These aren't mine. These are the words of the Almighty God. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? The answer to Christ's question is obvious. It's nothing. Nothing. It'll profit you nothing. Nothing but eternal torment for having heard the offer of life and salvation in Christ and refusing to admit that you're a sinner in desperate need of the only Savior, Jesus the Lord. You know, Charles Spurgeon said, Praise God, he said, there is mercy for a sinner, but there is no mercy for the man who will not own himself a sinner. I'm pleading with you this morning. And I am pleading with you this morning. Confess that you're a sinner. Own that you're a rebel against God and that you need Christ to rescue you from the wrath that you've earned. Turn from your rebellion that is only going to destroy you. And come to God for mercy. Respond to His gracious offer. Be broken by His love for sinners. And lay hold of the mercy that He freely offers. Come to Christ for salvation and He alone can do it. And I promise you, you won't be, you won't be disappointed. The scripture says, Romans 10, verse 11, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Let's pray together. <laughs> Heavenly Father, while I am grateful, Lord, for this text, and I am grateful, Lord God, for the way that this text transcends time and culture and it applies to us right here, right now. Lord, I pray that you would give us, Father, the earnest and, and, and soft hearts that we need in order to respond, Lord God, to your word today like we should. God, I pray that as we look at this text, we would be, we would confess freely with everything that's in us, our salvation, my salvation, God, it is not of me at all. It's entirely of your mercy. I pray that you would move us, Lord God, to be humble and that that humility would fuel worship and that doctrine would become doxology. I pray, God, that this, these words that we've looked at today would change the way that we think about the church and our part in it. Our part in this body of believers. These body of, of, this body of, of sinners 
that have received mercy. That the very existence of the church is evidence of the mercy of God. Pray, Father, that we would marvel at your at your godness. That you're God and we're not. And that it will cause us to see striving with you for sovereignty in our lives. I pray, Father, it would mold the way that we perceive the lost and that we understand the power, your power, God, to save. Lord, I pray that by your Spirit and through your Word, that this morning, Father God, you would call hardened hearts to yourself to turn from sin and turn to Christ, to turn away from rebellion. to embrace repentance and faith, belief in Christ, and obedience to His Lordship. I pray specifically for those who are in our midst that have not come to saving faith in Christ, that Lord God, you would irresistibly draw them right now and they would come to Jesus and they would cry they would call upon the name of the Lord and they would be saved praise in the holy name of Christ our lord amen